0: hey we're gonna have a ritual now <laughs> yeah. and we're not gonna wait for someone else to give us permission to be in ritual together we're gonna start having ritual now because we believe that we're worth saving in the morning
1: you're listening to the seed. Conversations for Radical Hope, a Pendle Hill podcast where Quakers and other seekers come together to explore visions of the world that is growing up through the cracks of our broken systems. I'm your host, Dwight Dunstan. Last season, we explored the Quaker testimony of integrity, and our guests shared stories and learnings of how this testimony showed up in their life and the work they do in the world. This season, We're exploring the practices that enrich our connections to ourselves and to each other. How do we cultivate relationships in spiritual community? How do these relationships and practices support our work for liberation and justice and transform our sense of what is possible? Our guest today is Autumn Brown. Autumn is a writer, musician, and facilitator. She co-hosts the podcast, How to Survive the End of the World, with her sister Adrienne, and supports liberation movements and workplace democracy as a worker-owner of the Anti-Oppression Resource and Training Alliance, also known as AORTA. Thank you so much, Autumn, for joining us on this season of The Seed, Conversations for Radical Hope. I am delighted, excited, <laughs> buzzy <laughs> with what whatever may come over the next bit of time together. And I don't want to get ahead of myself mm. at all. Uh-huh. Um, and so I want to just start with asking you... What's it like being Autumn Brown today? How are you landing in this space Mm. on this day?
0: Well, I definitely feel like I am Autumn Browning right now. A week ago today, I started my sabbatical, something that's been on the horizon for almost two years. I was on a very long journey to come to this moment. (laughs) And now I'm actually in the moment that I've been journeying towards for so long. And that very much informs how I'm arriving to this conversation today. The feeling that I'm experiencing over the last few days is one of unfurling and spreading. That's the language I would use to describe my current state.
1: I'm so curious about many things, but just hearing you talk about, I heard two years to get to this moment, and perhaps even more before then, um, um, any piece of that journey you want to, you want to talk about how did you arrive to, to really cultivate and, and give yourself the time and space to take this sabbatical?
0: I am a worker owner of a cooperative called AORTA, the Anti-Oppression Resource and Training Alliance. AORTA has a policy that when, once you've been an owner for six or seven years, you receive a sabbatical. Right now, I'm just in the gratitude of being a part of a democratic formation that truly values the sustainability of a human individual and all of the facets that each of us have.
1: Hmm. Yeah, there's this beautiful way that I'm hearing your ecosystem, your community pouring into you. And yes. you pouring into you, you really taking this, yes. this seriously for yourself and and I'm curious if there's other moments in your life where you really felt poured into by and nourished by a community, and how that maybe shifted your ideas of of what's possible in your ecosystem or in our movements or in our mm. in I, our well, relationships.
0: I just had one of those experiences actually, just this weekend over the weekend, I invited a group of people that I'm very close with and all of whom have very depthful spiritual practices into ritual with me to hold a space of ceremony. And so it really was quite literally inviting my community to pour into me in a very structured ritualistic way to speak words of power to me to hear me name what it is that I'm manifesting in this time and then reflect back to me that I have the capacity to manifest it. And it was an interesting experience because it was a couple of months ago that I realized that I needed a ceremony and I had to work through some of my own, some of my own negative stories about that being indulgent I had to kind of confront the part of myself that felt like it was wrong to call attention to myself <laughs> in, in relationship to something that feels deeply momentous to me, and, which mm-hmm. is interesting. It's interesting. The things that we imagine it's okay to call attention to ourselves for. And the things that we imagine are not as I'm getting older, the things that I want attention and ritual around are not, they're just different now when my divorce was completed in, in 2020, after that was over, I was like, I need a party. I hosted a virtual <laughs> divorce party for myself where I like called people in to witness me in this like momentous transition I had made of completely changing my life. What I needed was a circle of ritual to witness what for me feels like a, a moment of rebirth. We have all of the practices at all times at our disposal. Mm -hmm. The practices that we need in order to have nourishment and community and that experience of being poured into, we have it available to us. Many of us will not avail ourselves of it because of the stories we've internalized inside of racial capitalism and white supremacy that, <laughs> that the very form of sacred practice we most need is not the one that we deserve. And then we're made to feel that some of the things that have carry the most meaning for us internally are supposed to be carried out in private and mm. not, <laughs> not witnessed by community. Right. It's been a powerful part of my own soul and spiritual journey to say, I choose, I choose what forms I want to belong to. And I choose (laughs) what events in my life I want to have witnessed and how Mm. I want to be witnessed.
1: Mm.
0: And that allows community to pour into me because what I experienced this weekend was that every person who I invited to show up was delighted to be there. Just absolutely delighted. Everyone inside the experience of the ceremony got as much out of being there, I think, as I did. It's automatically reciprocal. Everyone's pouring into me and then they're also receiving as a result of that.
1: The thing that's rising up for me right now is around the pouring into your community being nourished also and you creating cultivating rich ritual and sacredness around this transition for you. It makes me think about how we create the conditions of belonging mm. in, in the spaces and places that we're a part of and, and where it is afforded to us in our society or where it's stripped away from us. And I want to hold any space for, for just reflections you might have on, on thinking about belonging and mm. how we come home, how we learn to come home to ourselves, how we learn to come home to one another, cultivating belonging through, through sacred practices, through rituals. Yeah, any, mm. any things you want to share about that?
0: Yeah, Dwight, thank you for this question. I've been thinking a lot about being lost and being found in relationship to this question of belonging. A significant part of the political work I've done over the last bunch of years has been centered around the concept of fugitivity and fugitive practice. Imagining what are the conditions of freedom. What are the conditions by which we make ourselves free or free ourselves? When I think about the actual encounter that a fugitive has with the world, it's like the actual encounter is one of saying, I don't know what freedom actually is. I just know that I have to get out of here. Mm -hmm. And that means that on some level, I have to make myself lost from what I know as i've sat with that that idea more the idea of being lost more and more what comes to me and what has felt like it has come to me through my own life journey and spiritual practice is that it is in those moments of of a profound sense of lostness that i am then able to be discovered i'm able to be found by the people who know how to find me that is belonging to mm-hmm. me it's belonging is the experience of being found by people who know how to find you. (laughs) Mm, 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 Um, mm. And it requires, does require a vulnerability to be able to acknowledge that you're lost (laughs) or to be willing to be lost. You know, the thing that I've been thinking about more and more lately is that it also requires a sort of fortitude and strength under Racial capitalism, many of us source a sense of belonging from being victims of this system. It is my opinion that that is not real belonging. Without denying the very real conditions of victimization, which exist all around us and within us, for me, it has been an important part of my spiritual practice and spiritual journey to like root out within myself my own attachment to being powerless and fortify myself and strengthen myself so that I, so that I can belong. Right. Mm. Because to me, an intact sense of belonging, an intact sense of community requires that I see myself as a responsible member of my community as someone who has agency to like care and be cared for. If I'm attached to being powerless, it's very difficult for me to access a sense of responsibility. And it's very difficult to access a sense of like reciprocity and mutuality that is required when you're engaged in intact community practice. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know what I'm Mm -hmm. saying? And it's challenging, of course, because you're working right at the edge of how do we have to change as individuals and how do our communities have to change? Our communities have to get better at recognizing the conditions of harm that mm-hmm. cause us to feel so attached to our victimization. My mm-hmm. therapist loves to talk about how we get very attached to being victims because we get gaslit by society and our harm—the harm the harm we've experienced is not recognized by our society. So long as people are feeling gaslit by the world around them, they're going to be more and more attached to this is my harm that I experienced. It needs to be visible. It needs to be seen. Mm-hmm. So that's where like community has to do a much better job of being able to witness, to bear witness to the reality of the pain that people are in. Mm. And then there's the interface or the interplay between community and individual. I think is that as individuals, we have to be willing to be witnessed and then to be changed as a result of being seen. <laughs> You know, it's like, all right, if I've been witnessed and my pain is witnessed and my pain is seen, ideally means that there's a pathway towards a more intact life. Hmm. Less bifurcated, less fractured.
1: Something many of our audience members might also be thinking about, but it's it's definitely something I've been thinking about in my own life, and that's the role slash the maybe a tool, maybe the practice of forgiveness mm. um, a dear friend Reverend Retta Morgan once said to me that there are some things in this lifetime that some of us will be able to forgive that others others just can't, yeah, and just that being true, just curious how you think about forgiveness as a practice, maybe as a tool in our lives or in our movements.
0: I love this framing from Red of that. There are some things that some of us will be able to forgive for but others won't. Where that intersects with my way of thinking about this is the notion of what is on my spiritual path in this lifetime and what is on other people's spiritual paths. You know, like what Mm -hmm. is the spiritual work that I have the honor to do During this time that I'm on the planet, because increasingly I think of freedom work itself as a thing that I am spiritually honored to do as a part of my life's purpose, that it's not just about I want to fix a problem so that I can have a better life. It's more like, (laughs) oh, this is like a way that I get to very directly experience being alive is by like working Mm -hmm. on ever more freedom. Well, okay, let me back up and first say forgiveness is something that was modeled in my immediate family as a core value, Hmm. particularly my mother, who is white, consistently modeled a willingness to forgive the, at times, very abhorrent behavior of her white family towards her towards my father, towards us as her children in order to be able to maintain a relationship. One of the things that she demonstrated to me is that that activity of forgiveness is not usually connected in any way to the other person's behavior.
1: Hmm.
0: It's not contingent on the other person changing Mm -hmm. in any way. That is extremely countercultural to this moment that we are living through right now. (laughs) <laughs> right, People don't even really talk about forgiveness right now. In, in our social movement context, the frame is more this term accountability that everyone uses, but no one seems to understand. It's like there's a real allergy, I think, to talking about the notion of forgiveness outside of spiritual community. I've always understood forgiveness as something that is not connected to a change in the other person that forgiveness is connected primarily first and foremost to the extent to which I want to carry a burden of hatred inside me. And I often think about Martin Luther King's like very famous speech, the love your enemy speech,
1: Mm -hmm. but that
0: specific line of where, when he says I love you, I would rather die than hate you
1: Mm.
0: to me that is like the root of forgiveness as an act. Forgiveness as an activity is fundamentally about being able to recognize how toxic and poisonous it is to carry the burden of hatred within. It is critically important to forgiveness that it isn't contingent on. It doesn't hinge on the other person acknowledging what they've done, if it's a whole community that's responsible for harm, that it's not contingent on acknowledgement, actually, from anyone else. It's only contingent on acknowledgement from within myself. I know Mm -hmm. I carry this wound. I know I've Mm -hmm. been harmed. I can witness my own harm and say to myself that I do not want this to define my identity any longer. Mm -hmm. Because that's the incongruence to me is the notion that the worst thing that's ever happened to me defines who I am. I'm multifaceted. I'm multitudes. I have so many selves within me. I have so many versions of myself that I've been, so many versions of myself I will become.
1: Mm -hmm. I
0: mean, may it be so. Forgiveness allows me the freedom to keep changing, to keep growing, to keep becoming who I am meant to be.
1: I love what you said also about, you know, it's an honor to take up this responsibility or to in this lifetime to be on this path towards freedom, right? It's it's an honor, I feel, to be able to practice or stretch what my forgiveness can do in my lifetime.
0: One of the things that I think can cause incongruence is that in our society, White people overvalue the notion of forgiveness, which is part of the gaslighting of whiteness and white supremacy, right? Is this overvaluing of the idea that like everything should be forgivable and that there's like an entitlement to being forgiven. But there is this superficial, shallow notion inside of whiteness of what forgiveness does. It can counteract what goodwill there might be towards being more forgiving it mm-hmm. counteracts it when people feel like they're entitled to it or they're owed it for right, whatever right. reasons there are, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, and, and what I witnessed with white folks and inside of whiteness and white supremacy is that sense of entitlement to being forgiven fundamentally comes from like a self-loathing. That's like, I, I can't even, I can't do it for myself. Someone else has to do it for me right mm-hmm. and so when i'm working with white folks around whiteness it's always like your first and foremost responsibility is to be working on healing your own belonging wound mm. forgiving yourself
1: yeah just just getting back to what you said earlier about creating those rituals like what would a ritual look like for a group of white folks to I don't know, make it sacred about coming and back to the coming home yeah. to ourselves, which yeah. we're all on a path to do. I, mm-hmm. I feel like.
0: And again, like I said at the very top of this conversation, the practices are available to us. It's not a matter of not having the practices, which isn't to say that, that we don't still have further work to do around recovering cultural practices that have been denied to us. There's always more that we can uncover, but the basics are with us because we're, we're humans. We're humans with innate Mm. capacities for ritual and ceremony. We sing, we dance, we make symbols, we make meaning. That's what it is to be a human. Whatever we need in order to be able to make ritual together, we already have it. It's about will. It's about the will to gather people and the will to say, we're going to have a ritual now.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
0: And yeah. we're going to have a and we're not going to wait for someone else to give us permission to be in ritual together. We're going to start having ritual now because we believe that we're worth saving.
1: Autumn, I, as we close our time together here, I would love to just hold a little space for any last things that are on your heart that you want to share or as our listeners turn away from from this episode, Maybe there's a practice you want to invite them into that could support them on that journey of belonging or beginning Mm. to create ritual or just want to keep it open for you, whatever's on your heart.
0: One thing that's on my heart is love for you. The other thing I just wanted to name for listeners who are going off off into the world being like, well, how would I make ritual? It's very simple to do. I just did it. Right. And I didn't know exactly what it was going to be. The ingredients that made my ritual work for me were I invited only people who I knew had clean energy with me. Right. People who wouldn't be bringing anything negative into the space, who were only relating to me with love and respect. Hmm. That's one. I asked a friend to help facilitate the ceremony and we met up together in advance to make a plan for what might happen. And then we just did it together. And then we ended with food. So those are the ingredients. Wow,
1: those three ingredients.
0: People who love you, a friend to help, Mm -hmm. and a meal at the end. (laughs) Yeah, you don't need a lot.
1: Autumn, I am humbled, grateful, inspired. By our time together. Aww. I thank you. Thank I thank you. your ancestors. I thank your ecosystem that nourishes you and pours into you this honor you have to support all of us, including yourself, to get free. Mm. Thank you so much for Thank being you, here.
0: Dwight. It's an honor to be on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. Hey, hey.
1: The Seed is a project of Pendle Hill, a Quaker center open to all for spirit led learning, retreat, and community. We're located in Wallingford, Pennsylvania, on the traditional territory of the Lenni Lenape people. Many of our guests are teachers, leaders, and speakers at Pendle Hill, and we host workshops, retreats, and lectures year-round. To learn more about upcoming programs, visit us at PendleHill.org learn. This episode was produced and edited by Anna Hill, with production support and advising from Peterson Toscano. Our theme music is The I Rise Project by Rev. Retta Morgan and Bennett Kuhn, produced by Astronautical Records. This project was made possible by the generous support of the Thomas H. and Mary Williams Shoemaker Fund. If you're finding these conversations meaningful and want to support our work financially, you can go to pendlehill.org donate. And if you have questions or comments, feel free to get in touch with us by emailing podcast at pendlehill.org. We love hearing from you. Follow us at Pendle Hill Seed on all social media platforms. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us to continue planting these seeds.